This episode of Breaking Brave is brought to you by Soul Snacks. Soul Snacks are single ingredient, eco-conscious dog and cat treats sourced directly from farms in Ontario and wrapped in fully compostable packaging. Treating your pets never felt so good. Use coupon code BREAKINGBRAVE for 15% off on soulsnacks.ca. That's soulsnacks.ca. This episode is also brought to you by Crank Coffee, the newest member of the Neal Brothers family. Crank Coffee is a new Canadian whole bean coffee brand that is certified organic and fair trade, founded by the Neal Brothers, Peter and Chris. This brand was influenced by cycling, coffee lovers, and experts. Check it out at the Neal Brothers online shop and use our coupon code BRAVE for 20% off your first Crank Coffee purchase. Enjoy. Welcome to Breaking Brave. I'm your host, Marilyn Barefoot. Thanks for joining us. Today, my guest is Dr. Michelle Druin. Michelle is an internationally recognized researcher and speaker on issues related to technology, relationships, couples, addiction, and partner violence. Dr. Michelle believes that at a time when technology seems to provide us with endless connectivity, it also leaves us strangely isolated and very desensitized. Please welcome the brilliant, the brave, Dr. Michelle Druin. I am beyond thrilled to have as my guest today on Breaking Brave, Dr. Michelle Druin. Michelle is a connection that I made actually on social media, funnily enough, through LinkedIn, because Michelle shared a very, very brave post um, that caught my eye, and I read it several times, and I reached out, and now now here we are. So welcome, Michelle, to Breaking Brave. Thank you so much, Marilyn. I'm happy to be here. Um, I would love it, if you don't mind, if we can go back to when you were seven and the brave share that you did on LinkedIn. Maybe you could tell us that story so it sets the stage for the rest of the conversation we're about to have today. Sounds good. So I'll go back a little bit. My mom divorced my father when I was about four or five, and we moved to Indiana from Colorado. And at that time, my mom um, had a number of different relationships and finally settled with my stepfather. And they married when I was five, and he was the person, the only person in my life that I remember calling dad. But their relationship was really tumultuous, and he was an alcoholic. So he would frequently get very drunk and engage in different types of behaviors from not coming home at night to being physically abusive to my mom. And some of that happened behind closed doors. So we would see only the remnants of it, you know, broken things when we would come into the house or see my mom afterwards. And some of it we would see, we were there, we would see with our own eyes. And sometimes I would step in and sometimes not. And I think as a child growing up in a house where there's domestic abuse, I now realize that you really fragment off your feelings about the person who's doing the abuse from 
the feelings you have for them as a parent or other family member. So I loved my dad, even though I knew these things were happening around me and that he was hurting my mom. Um, But my mom knew that she needed to leave. The problem was we were really poor. We didn't have a car. We didn't have anything. And my mom went to a counselor that I I didn't know I was seven. I didn't really know what she was doing, but she went to a counselor and the counselor said to her, you might be able to endure this, but think about what it's doing to your children. And she said that that was a turning point for her. And so that night, it was actually Halloween night. I was wearing only my Halloween costume. A person came and picked us up and we took nothing with us. I had no belongings, not a book, not a teddy bear, nothing. We fled our home. They took us to a place that I now know is just a couple of towns away from where we Mm -hmm. lived. Mm -hmm. We didn't say goodbye to anyone. We just left. And it was a shelter for battered women. So it was hidden in the city. No one really knew what this place was for. And we lived there for two months in a single room that had two twin beds that I shared one with my sister. My mom shared another one with my little brother, and she was also um, pregnant at the time. When we arrived, I remember they took us into the basement. It was funded by a church, so they had quite a few things that people had donated for kids who ended up in the shelter. And I remember going into the basement and they said, you can pick out anything you want to wear. And it was for me, like the biggest thing, I- I'd never had a lot of clothes. So I was like, yay, I get to wear any any of these. <laughs> and they said, they can, you can pick out as many things as you want and you can take them. And we ha- we only had a small room, but in that two months, we never left the shelter. I didn't go to school. I was in second grade. My sister didn't go to school. She was in kindergarten. Um, every day we would just play with the other kids that were there. My mom had therapy sessions with the other women that were there. Um, and then the goal was to get us out so that we could survive on our own. And that's eventually what happened. Oh my God. Thank you for sharing. So Dr. Druin, I'm going to call you Dr. Druin because you have so many accreditations, which we haven't gotten into yet, but we will. Um, were you the oldest? So you were seven and there was a, a sister and a brother and another child on the way. Correct. My sister was five. My other brother must have been one. And then my mom was pregnant with my other brother. So did you feel in that situation, both before the shelter and perhaps during the shelter, did you feel like you needed to look after your brother and your sister, like shepherd them be like the big sister guardian person? I definitely did. I remember feeling that pretty much my whole life. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a natural boss. <laughs> so I think regardless, maybe if we had grown up in a situation where we wouldn't have had so many difficult things to go through, maybe I would have always emerged like that. But I remember coming in from playing outside once and a friend of ours said, oh, can I come in? And I walked in and I saw that the kitchen had been destroyed. There was sugar overturned. There were glasses broken on the floor. And I remember saying to my sister, come on in. And I told the the girl that we couldn't play. And then my sister came in and she was like, what happened? And I said, it's not a big deal. Let's just start cleaning it up. So we just started picking up the mess and I think 
I think because I was the oldest child and my mom was really alone, she shared a lot of things with me that were probably too mature for me at the time. But because of that, I felt a sense of responsibility, probably, that I think I've carried with me as an adult. You know, I... I do like to shepherd other people. I do like to care for them. I have a deep well of empathy for others and a desire when things go wrong to try to pick up the pieces and to usher anyone I'm with into the process of picking up the pieces. Whether that is a good coping strategy or not, I've decided it's pretty good. (laughs) I think the people you're helping probably think it's fabulous as well because If it wasn't for the counselor and the quote-unquote stranger who drove you to the shelter that evening, I mean, who knows? And and thank God your mother was brave enough to make that move. That must have been very scary. Pregnant and three kids. I think it was. I I think about it now. You know, she was young herself. She was only 18 when she had me. So at this time, she's at most, you know, 26 when she leaves. And... I just think what a tremendous burden of a decision to have to make at that time. And also knowing that she had nothing and no one and had to start over again. It it was really hard. I also think of a lot of things. I think of all these little twists where people did one little thing that made such a huge difference. You know, you introduced this talk by saying we met on social media and Mm -hmm. I'm still sifting through all the responses, but one that really made an impact on me, someone said something like, what if she stayed? And it made me cry and I called my mom and I just said, you know, who knows where my life would have been had you stayed. One of the hardest things I saw when I was a child is um, my stepdad my mom was taking a bath and I was sitting in the bathroom and he came in and he tried to drown her and he stopped. I was crying and I, I was screaming and then he laughed and my mom was crying afterwards. But then I remember her saying, it's okay. It's over now. It's okay. I'm all right. I didn't die. Everything is okay. And I think, what if, what if that would have happened? What if he would have drowned her? And then instead of being children who grew up with a mother who loved us and protected us, I would have been a child maybe in the foster care system or, you know, maybe adopted by another family, but maybe my siblings and I would have been separated. I know that I had a lot of trauma growing up in that I experienced this, but I will tell you, Marilyn, and I think it's important for your listeners to know, I felt loved and when my mom left and built a new life for us, I felt protected and she always tried to protect us. And I think feeling loved and protected is something that has allowed me to open my heart to other people. I love unabashedly. I go into life just with a desire to love and, and had a circumstance been different, it would have changed everything. Or even the person, the person took a risk coming to pick us up. That person came in the middle of the night, picked up three little kids and a mom that she had never met and drove us. And that was a risk. My stepfather was a known abuser. He could have come in. He could have tried to kill her. He could have tried to kill my mom. So all of those people who did those things, they were huge in my life. And that's one thing that I feel grateful for. I'm the voice of these children who, at the time, I was not able to say, this means everything to me. Now I'm able to say, what you did, that meant everything to me. 
Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. And that's brave of you to tell us. And it's in my head. I, I'm like, I'm picturing the kitchen with broken things all over the place. How did it work out after two months of your mom rebuilding a life for you and your siblings? Like, didn't leave the shelter. Yeah. You were hiding, you were in hiding, but but then what? And and then what happened? Just so that the listeners and myself can can learn what the ending, if you will, at least at that point, was for your story. Well, it probably has an unexpected twist, but for people who have been in abusive relationships, they can probably predict a little bit of the end. Part of what they do in domestic violence centers is try to reconcile relationships where there is some hope of reconciliation. So my mom reached out to my stepfather and he went to Alcoholics Anonymous and he got sober. So we moved out on our own when I was in second grade. I started a new school. Interestingly, my mom didn't say anything about the gap, I don't think, um, in in terms of us not going to school. We just enrolled in a new school. And remember, this right. is the 80s where pe- there are fewer records. So I don't think anyone really questioned her. You just take your mom's word for it. Good, we're yeah, good with yeah, that. We're yeah, we're good. She's in second grade. <laughs> Let's go with that. I remember... A lot of things um, that year. My mom trying to make it on her own. She decided she needed to go back to college. Um, she started to go to college for a nursing degree, which she eventually got after seven years. It took her a long time. It took her seven years because she kept like sometimes we would get sick in finals week and there just wasn't a yeah. lot of support. However, my stepfather did go through a brief recovery from alcoholism And so he and my mom, over the next about four years, tried to on and off make it work. I never saw him drink again, but I would go to Alateen. Like I would go to the meetings for teenagers of alcoholics and children of alcoholics to cope with the feelings that I had. And he would at the same time be going to Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, My mom basically said to us, as long as he stays sober and we support him in his journey, then we are going to stay, try to make this family work. Remember, my mom was pregnant, so she had a child that my, yes. my one of my younger brothers, um, who then had a father in part of his life. So for a few years, it was good. And then okay. finally, when I was 11, um, that relationship ended. He could not stay away from alcohol. And he has remained an alcoholic. I I will say has until he died um, about three years ago. I will say that to me, the really promising part of the story is that although he stayed an alcoholic, he went and had another relationship that it doesn't seem that he was abusive in. And towards the end of his life, he and my mom really made amends. He apologized for everything he put her through. And he was never a very present father for my brothers. And in the last year of his life, my brother, my brother who's closest in age, the one who was three or two when we went to the shelter, he took him in in that last year because he um, has di- he had diabetes. He had had a finger amputated because he had um, complications with his diabetes. 
he had a lot of different medical issues. So my brother said, come live with me. We're going to make this, we're going to turn your life around. So he went to live with my brother and he did turn his life around. He stopped drinking for the first time in his entire life. He was completely sober for a year. Wow. And I wow. think he... um was eating healthy. He and my brother had these wonderful times. My brother lived in a lake house, so they would go out in the lake and they'd float and they'd talk. And then one day he went over to tend a vegetable garden in the house my brother had bought for him, even though he was living with my brother. <laughs> and, right. and he didn't come home. And my brother went and he found that he had died in the garden, just face down. And so we don't know exactly what happened, but despite the fact that he had been an alcoholic his whole life, had really not led a life that I would have thought he would have been organized enough to do this, but he donated his body to science. And wow. we found out that he actually had completed all the paperwork. And you had to be under 200 pounds in order to have your body accepted. And he had been on a diet for about four weeks and just that day hit 199.7. So... I feel like he, in that last year of his life, he really was able to yes. ma make amends, which means means a lot. And your brother had a lot to do with that, I'm he sure. Did. The love, the forgiveness, the caring, and just the time that they were able to spend together. He did. So I think it's a I think it's a pretty happy story. I think it's a happy story. Although I will say, and I don't know how many of your listeners will have this resonate with them. But, you know, my family is really strong and my brothers and sisters are pretty much all doing well. I have a sister, though, who has fallen into some of the same patterns as my mom did regarding her relationship choices. And my husband said something. He's not even a psychologist. And I thought, what a really astute observation. But he said, it's like you guys were all in a car accident. And you know how sometimes in a car accident, one person sustains the bulk of the the injuries. That's what it's yes. like with my sister. So like the rest of us seem to be thriving, but it was like my sister was more injured by those events in our lives than the rest of us were. So anyway, it's mostly a happy ending. Most of us are really thriving and doing well. And my mom lives a couple of blocks from me and I see her almost every day. So for me, that's one of the big benefits. That's a very happy ending. Dr. Druin, that's, that's a very happy ending. When you think about what ifs throughout the entire process of the story you just told us, thank you. And I'm, I'm glad your mom's okay and God willing, your sister will find the strength and through the love that you guys are showing her, I'm sure, to to figure this out. I hope so too. How did this then inform the incredible work you're doing now? So I just, let's talk a little bit about what you're doing now. Great. I'd love to. Um, so I'm a psychologist. I went to school, undergrad for psychology, and then actually in a weird twist of fate, I met a hockey player while I was in college and he wanted to play professional hockey. So I followed him around and following him meant that after our first two years out of college, we moved to England. And while in England, I thought maybe I could do my PhD while I'm here and Oxford is here. So I would love to go there. And I applied and I got in. So I got my PhD in experimental psychology from Oxford. And then we moved to Fort Wayne, strangely from Finland, because there was an NHL lockout. So again, little, little things that mean a lot. And we 
moved to Indiana, which is where I'm from, thinking we would be here for a year. And I called the psychology department. They had some things to teach. And that's turned into me being a professor. I've now been teaching at Purdue University, Fort Wayne, for almost 15 years. And I also work as a senior research scientist at what's called Parkview's Miro Center for Research and Innovation. So the Parkview Health is a big hospital system. We have 11 hospitals in Northeast Indiana and Northwest Ohio. And we are really embedded in our community. So we have a foundation, and through that foundation, we support community health of, of all sorts. We have a mm-hmm. beha- we have a behavioral health clinic. We have a community behavioral health clinic that's now within the bounds of Parkview Health, and we have a lot of community initiatives. So. Last year during COVID, there was an emergency grant that was put forward by an organization called SAMHSA. SAMHSA supports mental health. Suicidality is something that they often address with their grant efforts. And this grant was really seeking to help people who may be negatively affected by the COVID pandemic, whether that be because of the stay-at-home orders or other issues that have arisen. As many of your listeners know, the pandemic has worsened mental health across the globe. We have more need than ever for people to support others who are experiencing depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, and domestic violence. Interestingly, right when the stay-at-home orders hit, I started thinking about people who are affected by domestic violence Mm -hmm. because you have an incredibly tense and stressful situation where people are losing their jobs, you know, not able to leave the house, which is, I think, exacerbating the tensions that already exist for a normal family. And then you have no escape right? So the normal check-ins that kids might have to go to school or that uh, a a spouse might have to go to work, those didn't exist anymore. You're just stuck in this place. You're stuck there. Yeah, possibly with your abuser and not able to leave the house. So I thought of it immediately. So when this grant came out, I had a real passion for it. So it's helping both people who are suicidal, but particularly those who are in domestic violence situations um, and helping them get the transportation they need, safe housing and support so that they don't actually go through with any self-harm. I don't know, again, if this is something your listeners know, but many victims of domestic violence do engage in self-harm and may be suicidal um, because of the direness of of a domestic violence situation. And, And as I was researching you, pulling all kinds of numbers that, in fact, intimate partner violence, IPV, I'm learning all kinds of new terminology, that the calls, like calls for help actually dropped by 50% when COVID started because of what you just described in that there is no way to pick up a phone without being heard or found out, if you will. Yeah, so that's interesting too. They started having advertisements about little things, hand signals you could do during a conversation that you're having by video to indicate that you're in trouble. Because yeah, if your abuser is always watching you, how are you supposed to make those calls? It's sad that we are in this time, pandemic has brought about lots of stressors in all kinds of areas. But I'm really lucky that as part of our initiative, we were able to secure that grant and continue doing 
the positive work that Parkview Health has done in our community by helping people in this way. So that's what I do now. I, I love what I do. I also um, do forensic psychology. So I testify for uh, civil and military courts martial in areas of expertise of mine. And that is also something that I'm really passionate about and I love. But it's nice because I'm able to do some teaching, which fulfills that part of me wanting to help people understand psychology better. And I'm able to also, you know, do work in the law to help people make decisions um, of legal significance. And then doing this work with Parkview has really helped me touch people directly, which is probably one of the most rewarding things I've ever done in my life. Amazing. Thank you. And one of the areas I'd love to dive into a little bit is the whole concept of social media, sexting, texting, coercion, the back burner that you talked about in your TEDx talk at Neighborville that I was gripped by, watched (laughs) it a few times. So Let's try to talk about that in terms of social media and the effect that it's having on people and relationships and and ultimately coercion and mental health and suicidal ideation. So I always feel grateful that I grew up at the time that I did. I don't know how many of your listeners will have that resonate with them, but I just think back to the simplicity of my life, even though I've already said it, there were there were many roadblocks in the way. Yeah, but there wasn't a cell phone. Yes. Yeah. And, and so when you, on your in your TEDx talk in Naperville, and you talked about bravely walking over to a table of boys and chatting with what I guess became your future husband. There's some bravery involved in that because you have to physically just do it, whereas Mm -hmm. cell phones allow people to hide. They do. And not only that, they really desensitize people. So let's let's take that example of me walking up to someone. So it did take a lot of bravery. I remember, in fact, the exact moment I was in a dining hall, I was with a friend and my husband now, who wasn't my husband then, he was just a stranger. I didn't, I had no idea. Yeah, he was just a guy. (laughs) That you kind of thought was attractive or interesting or all of the above. Yeah, I mean, I only had my sights. I had never actually spoken to him. So it was really just attraction. And he had been looking at me. I had seen him look at me a couple of times and I thought maybe this could be something. So I walked behind a partition that existed between the dining area and the area that was a walkway where they served drinks. And I was with a friend and I said, did you see that? That boy looked at me and he's looked at me a couple of times. And she said, if you go over there, I'm not coming. <laughs> I thought, no. You're on your own there, Dr. Yes, Gruen. Yeah, com- knock yourself out. <laughs> I was completely on my own. But I think that's a really good testament to how brave you have to be to walk up to a table full of people. My friend would not even accompany me on this grand adventure. So I'm not going to be your wing person yeah, on this she, adventure she at all. She absolutely no. was not. Yeah. So I... The desensitization comes in first here. So for me, it did take a lot to walk up to him. I remember I remember the feeling. And I remember the feeling too. So one of the things I don't say in my TED Talk is he, he gave his name. 
he said his name was PC and I thought he just gave me a fake name. That's so weird. <laughs> like whose name is PC? <laughs> right. Like JP. Not, okay. Yeah. But PC? <laughs> Never. <Yeah. laughs> so, and then his friends kind of gave me a hard time. Don't you know who he is? And I said, no, I don't know who he is. Anyway. So afterwards I was a bit mortified. I walked away and I thought, oh no, I've really blown it. And I actually, Here's another, you know, a little event that someone thinks might not mean something. We went back to a house and my friend's um, sorority sister was there. And I said, oh, I just did something that was so foolish. I just walked up to this table full of guys and I introduced myself and I made a fool of myself. And it was, and she said, who was it? And I said, I I think he said his name was PC. And she said, oh, I know him. And she said, he's really quiet, actually. So if he wasn't super responsive to you, it might just be who he is. And I thought, hmm, okay, maybe I still have a chance. But there, another chance encounter that actually gave me a little bit of bravery later on because then I talked to him again. What are the odds that this individual at your sorority house actually knew who this guy was? Exactly. And could give you a little insight. And she was sitting there in the basement right when we walked in the door. You know, the chances were, were small. So how does this relate to today's culture? I think people because they don't maybe have that feeling as much and they just have to send a text message. Do you want to go out? When someone says no, it doesn't hurt as bad. That's kind of good, Mm. right? Rejection doesn't hurt as bad because it's just over the text and you think, well, they didn't get to see my face. I would have been so much cuter and fun, more fun. Like there's a million different reasons, right? Oh, they were having a bad day, but they didn't, you didn't have to have any body language or any chemistry or any, anything around it. Exactly. It's just a text. So I, I risk little. And then when I get that thing, maybe I gain little as well. But I can see this permeate across the entire social landscape, right? So if I were insulted, it feels big. If I'm insulted online, people are like, eh, that's just the way it is. Cancel culture. They're like, eh, you know, if you're famous, you're going to get canceled. If you're, if you're going to do this online, you're going to get criticism. Whereas I still think those words hurt. <laughs> Kids yeah. growing up these days are completely desensitized to it. They're like, huh, this mm. is just the way it is. You get, you have these little interactions online. They don't mean much. Move on. Oh, are you a snowflake? I hate the word snowflake, by the way. What is it? I don't, I, okay, I'm obviously older than you, but what is a snowflake? (laughs) Snowflake is a person who's sensitive to any criticism that they've given. Oh, you're so sensitive. You're like a little snowflake. You're a little snowflake. Yes. And so we have been working in psychology for a very long time to get people to be able to voice their feelings, right? It's, it's been part of, I think, a wonderful revolution that's happened at least since I've gone, gotten, like, been growing up. As a teenager, people weren't really talking about seeing a therapist, and people weren't talking mm-hmm. about having negative experiences. In fact, as a testament to that, my best friend, when I made that LinkedIn post, my best friend from sixth grade, she texted me and she said, oh my gosh, I just saw your LinkedIn post. I never knew. How did I never yeah. know this? And I, I called, didn't have any idea, and I was your best friend. I called her and I said, well— because we moved after my mom divorced my stepdad to a new town again. 
And I said to her, when you're a teenager, you just want to fit in. I didn't want to tell you anything that was going to make me different and maybe make you look at me in a different way. I said, she said, I can't believe I didn't know. I would have wanted to protect you. I would have wanted to care for you. I didn't know. And I said, you know, it's interesting. Your mom started driving me to school in seventh grade. She took me every day to and from school. Your mom and dad came to all of my tennis matches. Your mom and dad did all these things for me. And her mom was a teacher. Her dad was a teacher Mm -hmm. as well. And I said, Maybe they didn't know, but they knew something. I think they... They sensed something. Yeah. I think they picked up on the fact that I was a vulnerable kid and they wanted to give to me. And they didn't know the whole story. I said, but Sarah, you guys might not have known everything, but they knew enough that your parents became like my surrogate parents. They really helped me through a ton and they were there for me when my mom couldn't be. So... Um, interestingly though, you know, you don't share those things. Those, those are not, we, we keep those things hidden. So in psychology, I feel like it's been a great revolution from, you know, when I was a teen where people kept things hidden till now where people are starting to say, Hey, I'm having real issues with anxiety or I, I'm feeling depressed. What a wonderful thing that people can now Mm -hmm. say that. But then we also have, on the other hand, people calling each other snowflakes. So I've learned to now voice my feelings and say, what you just did, it hurt me. That hurt me. That's a wonderful step in a relationship. Yes. And then on the clap back from this culture is, oh, don't be such a snowflake. And I think, where where are we going? (laughs) We just taught people how to say they've been hurt. And now we've given people ammunition to shoot that down as somehow— To criticize them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not valid. It's, it's, it's an unfortunate step we're taking. So I think overall what I've seen that's potentially going to be, I don't know, it's just changing the way we are as humans is just this desensitization that comes with mm. being online. And I know I didn't talk about sexting, but, you know, sexting, it's the same. It's all within the same vein. Sexuality, we're becoming desensitized because people start sending pictures when they're young. So a naked body doesn't mean what it used to mean, right? Because you see yeah. it you see it all the time. Thank you. I was reading some statistics around, and this was all about Facebook, backburner relationships, meaning that people that are in a committed relationship, we have, uh, women would have a relationship with three of their Facebook friends and sleep with eight of them. Mm -hmm. Men would have a relationship with eight of their Facebook friends and would sleep with 26 of them. Mm -hmm. Concept of if there's a small little bump in the road, of the relationship that I'm committed to, I got all these people waiting in the wings on the back burner who I can just reach out to. Yeah, there's a really famous quote that I that speaks to this. And they said, you have one foot out the door because one foot out the door, there's more, more, more. So I, and I don't even think, Marilyn, which is interesting, I don't even think you need to have a bump in the relationship. You could just have... A desire for a little bit of extra fun, right? Yeah. So maybe you're bored. Yeah. What I've what I have definitely realized over my years of studying the internet and how it affects relationships is that the world being wide open has so many positives. Look, you and I are meeting and talking now. We would have never met. We would not have this ability to communicate. And then this message would not be spread to your listeners the way it's going to be, if not for this world wide web and social media. 
What a wonderful gift. Yes. On the other hand, it also opens the world to so much. So I am no longer just sitting in my house with my husband and my children. I could have the world open to me every single day in in countless ways. I could get any information that I want. Almost anything, any question that I could ever have could be answered. So I could want to, instead of sitting and enjoying, last night I played cards with my husband and my children and our, our my in-laws are here, so we all played cards together. But I could, instead of doing that, be looking up some burning question I have on the internet. It doesn't have to all be related to like cheating on a partner. But then yeah. also... I have access to hundreds of millions of people in the world. I could talk to them innocuously. I could talk to them innocuously and it could turn sexual. I could talk to them sexually. There are countless options. So there are just ways in which that one device that we all carry around with us all the time can be really intrusive on our lives and in our relationships because there are just so many options. And Dr. Drew, what do you think about dating apps? This whole swipe left, swipe right. Do you have an opinion about these things? Yeah. So I'm okay. Good. I have. <laughs> I, have um, I just finished my first book, so I have a book coming out. Yes, I have a book coming out in the spring, uh, spring of 2021. So in a year with MIT Press, it is called "Out of Touch: How to Survive an Intimacy Famine," and. I talk about a lot of ways in which we are getting intimacy and not getting intimacy through various parts of the life course. And I have a special chapter on a pan- on the pandemic. So it's how to survive a pandemic. But it's all focused on love and relationships and belongingness and those things that I preach about in my TED Talk as human beings needing at a basic yes. level of human motivation. And this was not started with me. You know, Abraham Maslow has his hierarchy of needs and he said, okay, you need food and water and then you need a safe, you need to feel safe. So you need a shelter over your head. And then at the very next level, you need to feel like you're loved. You need to feel like you belong. So I take a life course perspective on it. And one of the chapters I have is on dating. So what do I think? Oh, goodness. How long do we have? This could be like a two-day conversation. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So we could do it in chapters, but (laughs) definitely I'm going to stop you here and say spring of 2022 or just before this beautiful new book comes out, I would love you to come back because we're going to talk about it. We want to promote it. We want to give it its due. So there's your invitation for next year. But yeah, dating apps. What about the dating apps world? Is it killing us? Is it helping us? What's going on there? It's doing both. Okay. So one of the things that it's really done is widen the net and you want to Mm. find people who fit with you. And we were heretofore limited to the people who we just met in in real life, right? So the people we worked with, the people we maybe uh, did social activities with, like church or um, tennis club, whatever it is that you are doing and you're into, you would meet people and you'd be limited to them and their networks of people if we're going to be liberal. Now you have the whole world open to you. You know, you have 
thousands and thousands of people who will even come up if you're in a big city on a simple dating app. Mm -hmm. So it creates a couple of problems. I know some of the people who are listening will have heard of Barry Schwartz. He has a book called The Paradox of Choice and talks about the fact that we have so many options. And that just availability of so many options can be paralyzing for some people. How do I move forward when I have a thousand options? Why don't you just give me three? (laughs) Let's just narrow. Yeah, there could be. I don't want to commit because there could be somebody better. Yes. Maybe if I commit, then I've missed an opportunity for somebody even better. Exactly. Right? So it's it's good and bad. It's allowing people to find others who really do connect with them. But then it's making you wonder, on the other hand, oh, wait a second, could there be someone who connects with me even more and even more? Yeah. And the the answer is probably yes. I mean, uh, it's interesting because my husband and I who met before we had cell phones, I mean, we didn't even have email. I think there was email at my college, but no one used it. <laughs> but I mean, there was just no option to communicate in this way. So the luckily... Luckily, I say that because that meant that his options were me, who I would show up at his house every day and say, hey, <laughs> or it Here would I be- Here I am. How yeah, do we do it? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, or it would be, you know, he would have to go out to meet someone else. There wasn't an option to meet people online. I will say a couple of things. You've probably heard of, because it does seem like you did your research, what's something that's called the online disinhibition effect. So this is a theory by Suler that says that when we're online, we're disinhibited through a variety of different processes and for different reasons. We type things that we probably wouldn't say face-to-face. There's like a diary effect almost when we're typing into our phones. That's a great analogy. Yeah. Yeah. We feel a little bit anonymous, interestingly, and people who are your listeners will think, oh yeah, that's true. There's something called solipsistic interjection, which means that you actually read the words in your own voice, which makes it oh. even seem more like a diary, right? It, it yeah. almost as if you're having a conversation with yourself and you can do it so quickly. So I can type a message super quickly and it's off to someone. So we get really disinhibited online and that means relationships can get really deep, really quick. I yeah. I feel it as well with this. Like this is a podcast so we're supposed to dive in deep quickly. But if we were in a face-to-face situation, there probably would have been more formalities, right? We would have talked Absolutely. a little bit about who we are. Yeah. Well, yeah. the internet removes all of those formalities. There's there are really none of them. You want to know age, sex, location. Yeah. Which you can usually get from a bio and then you can dive right in. There's something beautiful about that. As someone who doesn't like to waste a lot of time with small talk, and I get the sense just because of the questions that you ask me that you're probably similar. Hate it. Hate it. I mean, I was really happy when there is no more things right at the moment called cocktail parties where you got to stand around and make, no, I just... If we're going to talk, we're going to talk about something that matters. You know, that's I'm I'm either the person you love or hate or at a cocktail party because I get really deep with just, you know, people who I just meet. So they're either like avoid that person or this might be my best conversation of the night. <laughs> if we're ever at a cocktail party together, Dr. Druin, I'll be chatting with you and we'll be going deep really fast. Perfect. Yes. I love that. So, okay. So the internet is good for the two of us for some of those reasons because there does seem to be an ability for 
people to break down some walls that they would hold in re and when I keep saying real life, I think online life is real life. So I should say in face-to-face life. Yeah, in-person life is just a little bit different. There are a few more formalities. And you then can expose more about yourself and get close really quick. The problem with that is there's also something to be said about face-to-face chemistry. Yeah, What you have with someone face-to-face could be very different than what you have online. So one of the things I recommend in the book, and this relates to online dating, is try to see that person in as many environments as possible when you are Mm. first meeting with people. You have only a limited amount of time. Time is something I heard the other day that even the rich can't buy more of, which I loved as an expression. Money can't buy time. Money cannot buy time. And so if you think of it in that way, then we all need to do what's called social economizing. We need to devote our time to those things that are important to us. And spending time nurturing 30, 43 one relationship that doesn't go anywhere, you it's an opportunity cost for spending time on a relationship that could go somewhere mm-hmm. or a several relationships that could go somewhere. I don't want to rule out, you know, polyamory. But the point is you are pursuing one, but at the cost of spending the time pursuing something else. So mm-hmm. my suggestion with online dating is Try to make decisions about who you want to meet up with quickly and then meet up with them. Somewhere uh, public, plenty of light, lots of exits. (laughs) Um, But do that quickly so that you can see, does this person actually have something face-to-face that means something? Because face-to-face chemistry does mean something to most people. Then I totally agree. Exactly. But you see these people who will have six month, one year, two year interminable relationships with those online who they never meet face to face. And you think, how is that possible? I mean, it's it's really interesting to me that this happens. And it could be if if you want a relationship that exists in in face to face life, um, that might be a big waste of time if you just don't have the chemistry. So yeah. I think it opens up a big world. Try to be as socially economizing as you can and then try to see that person in as many environments as you can see them in. Because um, Walter Michelle, a psychologist who's known for the marshmallow test, but I'm not going to be talking about the marshmallow test, but he actually studied self-control in children with, you know, do the kids mm. eat the marshmallow or do they wait for two? But he also said something that's really important. And he said, you really have to take into account the power of the situation in determining how a person is. Now, we know there are some fundamental things about personality. We have personality measures that capture those parts of of a person that may differ, you know, between you and me or between me and another individual. I am more mm-hmm. of some things than other people are. They are more of some things than I am. And those stay pretty consistent. But Walter Michelle said, actually, the situation is super powerful in determining how someone acts. So how someone is when they're out for a formal dinner can be very different than the way they are when they're just lounging at home. And that can be very different than they are when they're interacting with children or when they're out on a vacation. So try to see that person in as many environments as you can quickly so that you'll know whether that's something that's a benefit for you and you really want to be in a relationship with that person. Super wise. And you're absolutely right. 
It's like, well, it, it, couples that go on a vacation together, well, we had a great time. Well, it's hard not to have an amazing time when you're lying on a beach drinking Mai Tais or whatever you're doing. But real life situations can be exceptionally different. So, so wow, that's great. That's That's absolutely fabulous. I wanted to go back to intimate partner violence because I just think it's important that people understand what can people what can people do if they're experiencing this because if you're at home and you can't reach out and you're being watched if somebody needs to express the fact that they need help you'd mentioned on a video call there might be hand signals I I've heard oh will you order a pizza and then there's something you say to the person taking the order like what can people do just because I want to make sure we cover that off as as a general rule of thumb? So first, let me say that where you are is going to be, there will be different resources available to you depending on where you are. The thing about, let's talk about the pizza or the hand signal. Okay. Those things will be useful as long as the person you're communicating with has seen that advertisement. So for me to promote something like that, there would have to be more worldwide or at least national acceptance of these as the, you know, the symbols. Right. What I would say uh, that people should do is let people in more. Okay. What you sometimes see in cases, you know, we, we also have cases, most people who are murdered are murdered by someone they know. People who are escaping domestic violence, they do so at risk of their own life. They are sometimes in great peril. And what you sometimes see left behind are diaries where they have shared what they're going through, but they didn't share it with an actual person. And I understand why. There are several reasons. One, there's there's shame, like I felt with my friend. I felt ashamed. My mom, even when this post went viral, my mom and I had a lot of conversations about it. We cried together. We talked together. Mm. Um, we we had a lot of feelings, both of us. But one of the ones that I was surprised about is she said, I still feel so much shame. And I said, why do you feel shame? You, mom, people are saying what you did, you were a hero. You were an angel. You saved us. And she said, I felt shame that I put you guys in that position to begin with, that I let that happen and that you saw what you saw. And so I think one of the things that people need to hear, and I hope even one of your listeners, I say something that means something to them, is letting people in means that you have a wider net to catch you. And try to let go of any shame you feel and know that whatever you're doing is creating a safety around you. It's The -hmm. people who really care about you and who love you will be there for you. One thing that I think my mom could see is that because of her choices and her relationships, she had become distanced from her family members and therefore didn't mm. feel like they had a net around her. However, this is something that people have to open themselves up to. If you don't feel like you can open up to an individual, 
a therapist, calling your local domestic violence shelter. Uh, YWCA is something that we have nationally here that has usually there'll be a shelter in almost every major city. They have great resources. They can put you in touch with different levels of support. Do you need a ride? We will give you a ride. Do you need temporary housing? We will find some place for you. So if it's not something that you feel comfortable sharing with someone you love, then at least call and get some resources from the already established networks that we have in almost every major city. And even if you're in a rural area, because um, people in rural areas are especially vulnerable. You talk about not having a big net. They don't even have a neighborhood of people who might notice that things are going on. Yeah, Um, of course. Even in rural areas, which I would say the town that I was living in was a rural area, we were transported from that to a city that had a domestic violence shelter. But even within rural areas, there are usually outreach programs that will have support for domestic violence. So my suggestion and the way to do it as safely as possible is to just involve someone who is a Mm -hmm. trained professional who could actually connect you to the right resources. Now, I think some people might be afraid, oh, if I tell a trained professional, am I going to get my children taken away from me? And I think that's another reason why people are scared. But know that I am a living testament to the fact that once my mom let people in to what was going on in my household, we didn't get taken away. We were then just part of a net of protection. They wanted to protect us. And there is a general sense that people want to keep children with their parents when possible. Yes. So I don't want people to be afraid of that. Um, So, I mean, that's it, Marilyn, just connecting to letting people know who are close to you so that if you ever need anything, they're there and available. And then also reaching out to those community resources like a YWCA. If you, luckily, that's another thing about the internet, Googling domestic violence support. There are even hotlines that you could call, especially if you're feeling depressed or suicidal. There are anonymous hotlines you could call to talk to people. There's another one of the huge upsides of having the internet and having access to all of those tools. Dr. Drew, can we talk a little bit about spouseware? Because when I when I was researching you, I didn't know this. I had no <laughs> idea. So maybe there's an awful lot of people out there in the big world listening that may not know either. So what is it and and why is it terrifying? So people are using the Internet of Things. So you might have heard this term before. Um, but it's referred to as IoT in the literature. But people are using the Internet of Things to exert power and control in their relationships. At extreme ends, I've heard of people changing the temperature in the house to try to torture their partners. So your partner wants it at a certain temperature, you're away, you change the nest so that it's another temperature. You actually change their physical environment. You might be tracking their bank statements. You might be putting transponders under their cars to track their whereabouts. Or you might be using their phones to track them. So you could put a program into their phone so that you could see every message that they send, Every mm-hmm. video chat that they uh, engage in, every phone call that they have, and you can track 
basically everything your partner does. Now, if you, if you consider that most of us carry our phones with us almost everywhere, you probably don't even need the others. You don't need to put something on their car. All you need is something on someone's phone. You could also, yeah, use Find My iPhone and you can track them. And some partners have this so that their, their spouse knows that it's on. I want you to keep your Find, find My iPhone on so that I can always see where you are. Some people uh, out have of a sense on. of love and caring? Possibly. It we could hope. be. It could be. We hope so that they know that you're safe. Yeah. I have said to my sons, um, so we have contracts when we gave my son, who's 13, he just got his first cell phone. And I said to him, you will always share your location with me as part of you having the cell phone because I want to know where you are. And until you're 18, I want to always know where you are. And if you ever turn that off, there's going to be a problem. <laughs> so I just want to, I want to know where you are. I probably won't ever check it. I think that it's for me a safety feature. So yeah, in some cases it could be safety, but in some cases it could be a sign of a controlling partner. So yeah. the internet of things is being used to exert, as I said, power and control in relationships. And when you have that coercive control in a relationship, it is something that is often goes hand in hand with other types of abuse. So verbal abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, those abusive characteristics often cluster. Thank you. So Dr. Druin, how can we support the wonderful work that you're doing? How can the listeners support you? Can we make a donation somewhere? Can we because what you're doing is groundbreaking and wonderful. And please, please, please come back next spring when your book's about to go out, because I would love to talk to you again about the book. Um, but how can we support your work? Thank you. So the work I do at the hospital, I'm actually doing work to support our work. So <laughs> I'm, I'm okay. writing grants. I'm writing grants so that we can go out and support our work. Luckily, there are a lot of great grants and a lot of uh, government bodies that are giving lots of money, especially during COVID, to help support mental health, to help support domestic violence, suicidal ideation. And one of the other major areas that I work in is um, substance use, So, which is an interesting tie-in as well with my past. Um, yeah, so so my suggestion if people want to donate would be to donate to local places that will make a difference in your own community. Okay. The kids and families that you pass on the street, you may not know it, but you are actually helping them. And another one of the messages I received was from a man who was in Canada, interestingly, and he said he had donated a large amount of money to a domestic violence center to build a residential unit for these individuals, but he never saw the people. So he said, when I posted my story, it made him realize there are real people attached to this who are actually benefiting. So yeah. one of the things, one of the things I'd say to your listeners is I am so grateful that I'm in the position I am now. And I can say to you that my seven-year-old self feels like my world was changed at that moment. Had that violence center not existed, who knows where I would be today. I am forever grateful for everything that everyone did to support the existence of that center. So I can say that now because those seven-year-olds who are you're helping are not going to be able to voice that to you. The other thing I'm going to say that I think is even more important is it's not one single person that rescues you from trauma. Over the course of my life, I've had 
hundreds of people who've rescued me. I gave you that story of my friend's mom and dad who were there for me. But one of the most impactful people, she probably doesn't even know the effect she had on me. When we first moved to out on our own after getting out of the shelter and I was in second grade, I went to the office every day during lunch and asked if I could call my mom. And every day, the administrative assistant at the office said, yes, you can call your mom. So I would call and I would just say, I just want to know you're okay. And she, my mom would say, yes, I'm okay. And so I would go in every day for lunch. And then one day, the secretary said to me, Michelle, I will let you come in every day and call your mom if you want to. She said, but I want to tell you something that maybe no one has ever told you before. And I said, what is it that you want to tell me? And she said, no news is good news. And I said, what does that mean? And she said, you know, if anything were to ever happen to your mom, they would call us at this school. And I promise you, if anyone ever called us, I would come down and tell you right away. I would tell you. So you don't have to call every day because someone would tell us if something happened. And I said to her, no one has ever said that to me before. I didn't know that. You know, so it was something that was so basic. It was so basic. But as a seven-year-old, I never knew that. And I never called home again. I was fine. And actually, no news is good news has helped get me through so many of my most stressful moments. And it's not always true. (laughs) Like, I know now. We'd like to believe that it is. Yeah. But there is the school secretary who changed so much for you that you could relax a little bit more and she felt you and she saw you and she understood what you were going through. I I don't even know her name. I don't even, and I didn't say to her then how much it meant to me, but it meant everything to me. And I've like my, it changed my whole life. It changed again. Now I know that it's not exactly true. And truly I probably wouldn't have known in the middle of the day, but what she did was she gave me peace of mind. Yes. And so what I would say to the people who want to help is to just notice the people around you and help in the ways you can and extend your heart and love in every way you can to people who you think need it, who you think don't need it. You don't have to always just be rushing to someone when they're having trauma. People might be having a down day and you might not even notice. So just giving your love, giving your care to people is the best way to live a life that will honor, you know, everything that I'm doing and everything that we're all doing, Marilyn. So that would be my biggest suggestion. Thank you. And it can make such a huge difference and maybe... Maybe the per- maybe you giving, you don't know what kind of a huge difference like the school secretary made for you, Dr. Druin. If people want to follow you, how do we how would they connect with you? I almost hate to hand out social media handles at this point. <laughs> I know. Yeah. After all the bad things we've just said about the internet. Uh, and good things. But so how would they connect with you or how would you like them to connect with you if they would like to? They can reach out to me on LinkedIn at Michelle Druin or on Instagram, Druin, And I respond to all messages. So if someone wants to direct message me, I'll, I'll accept their request. So yes, I, and I think my email address is all over the internet. <laughs> if you Google me, you're stu- I'm a public educator, so you're sure to find some public information about me. Um, yeah, and please reach out if you have any questions or you just want to talk. I mean, my whole... 
my whole feeling is that we do too little of this, Marilyn, where we really connect with people. So I've appreciated connecting with you. And I hope some of your listeners will want to do the same with me. I've loved every second of it, Dr. Druin. And thank you for being so brave. And I, I hope this will help. I hope this conversation, as you said, I hope this conversation will help some folks out there that are listening. And I would love it if you come back and join me before the book, before the book comes out. Thank you again. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Breaking Brave. For updates between episodes, please visit my website, MarilynBarefoot.com. You can also find me at Marilyn Barefoot. That's it for today. See you next time.